Okay, one of the things that happens around here all the time is we get asked as pastors, honestly, from all over the country, do you have any good churches that we could go to? Do you know any more places like Woodland? Is there something more? And then they say, are there any TV shows we could watch? Are there any televangelists we could watch? Anything, just like Woodland. So we finally have found one that we really want to endorse and we affirm. So we'd like to show a little clip from this televangelist just, and you can kind of see what you think about it. Hi, friends. So glad you tuned in today. You know, the Bible says that God looks at those things that are not as though they were. And if you've got the eyes of faith and the mouth of faith, you can confess and believe those things that are not and speak them into being. You look at this hair and you think, well, that's a pretty good head of hair for a 54-year-old TV evangelist. But I want my rock star hair back, so I got my faith brush. And I'm going to start combing faith strokes. And... I'm believing that, that, you know, the Bible says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And, and, and the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, but when you put it in the ground, it starts to grow. When you have short hair, it's kind of boring. But this way you can do a lot of things. Like, this is, this is my Albert Einstein look. Sideshow Bob look. You're fired, the Don King look. God knows all the hairs in my head, and he knows they're getting longer by the second. The Al Sharpton look. I'm speaking my rock star being into existence. 1.21 gigawatts! I believe there's probably some bald people watching right now. You put your hands on the television and say, send in the seed faith offering and I, I, I will guarantee you, you will, Pastor Chia Pet will grow your hair. Give me a head with hair, long, beautiful hair, shining, gleaming, streaming, flaxing, flaxing. Give me down to there, shoulder length longer. story behind that I went five months without cutting my hair for this little film that we were doing and and uh, I thought before we cut it off uh, it'd probably never be that long again so let's have a little fun with it so Trevor got his camera out and put that together and I guess the point of the whole thing is is is, is never take yourself too seriously make sure you laugh at yourself once in a while and never mature beyond junior high really uh, it's life gets boring after that all right, good to see you all here this morning. Uh, we're going to dive into the Word. We're looking at the book of Colossians here, hovering on these passages uh, for the last six, seven weeks, uh, starting with chapter 1, verse 28 through 2, 7. Um, I want to entitle this message, Let's Not Make a Deal, because it's about how Christianity is not a deal. It's a covenant. Let's not make a deal. And uh, we're reading from the same portion that we've been looking at the last several weeks. Uh, I'll just read a portion of this. Uh, starting with 128. Paul says, We proclaim him. Seeing about Christ in you, the hope of glory, that mystery that's now revealed. Great stuff here. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, Paul says, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And he says, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. And I delight to see how disciplined, and how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, just as you did that, same way, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. 
Pray with me here for a moment. Abba Father, you are here. Help us to be aware of that. Stay aware of, of that fact. For everybody who maybe is listening through podcasts or other means, we pray, God, that you'd help them to stay aware of your presence and surrender to your presence. And then, Lord, use this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Infuse it with your, your spirit and, and, and authority and use it, God, to build your kingdom. Uh, to alter the way we, we do our ordinary mind, the way we do ordinary life. To make every moment a sacred moment, a kingdom moment. Because in every moment you are there. Do it, Lord. By the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. I hope you had a good week of staying present. We talked about that last week. Uh, staying aware of God's presence and surrender to God's presence and gave some uh, exercises to do uh, to help us stay awake, stay aware of God's presence. And, and I'll add a few more of those uh, at the end of this message. But I encourage you, even as we're going through this message, to stay, stay aware that as you're listening to this, include God in your awareness because he's here. And the most important fact of every moment, including this moment, is that God is here. God is present. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Uh, it's, it's the all-important fact. Also, uh, by, I'm hoping to have a little time at the end of this message uh, to uh, take some questions. So if you have a question, uh, you can text it into this number, and we'll try to get to that uh, after, at the end of this message, hopefully. Uh, so text that in. So to start here, Paul says that he strenuously contends uh, for, to present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul was aware, as every Christian leader needs to be, that he is going to have to give an account of how he matured people in Christ. So he strenuously contends for this. The end game, the goal of it all, is to present people fully mature in Christ. That's the criteria that, that Paul knows he'll have to give an account of. And the criteria is about maturity. It's not, the criteria is not about how big a church you could build or how many believers can you make. Or, or how many people can you get to attend a sermon? That's not the criteria that Paul is interested in. The, the end game is always to present people fully mature in Christ. That's, that's the goal, and so that has to be our goal. The goal is to always be growing uh, in conformity with Christ and to be deepening in our faith. Um, it's, the, it's the only criteria that matters. The key to growing in Christ, we saw last week, has to do with the last two verses that we read. Uh, today and, and last week, when Paul says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith that you were taught. He says, So then, just as you received Christ, uh, continue to live in him. That we, we saw last week that that phrase, to continue to live in him, is peripateo. It means to walk in a certain way. To walk in a certain way. And so what Paul is saying is it's not just enough to receive Christ as Lord. Walk in a way that reflects that. Step by step. We saw last week that that's in the present uh, active imperative. And so it means it's always a present thing. It's always an active thing. In every present moment, step by step, we're to reflect the Lordship of Christ just as we received him. Step by step. And then Paul says that we're to be rooted in him. And, and being rooted in him will be strengthened in him. And the word there. Uh, it has to do with uh, being rooted like a tree. And so what Paul's saying is with every step, be rooted like a tree is rooted. A tree's roots give it the nourishment and, and cause it to grow and be strong. So also with every step we take, it's always the present imperative, we're to be getting our nourishment from Christ. 
Which means with every step we take, as we continue to walk in him, as we received him, we're to be getting our life from Christ and our worth from Christ and our security from Christ, our sense of significance from Christ, our, our sense of being fully alive from Christ. That's what it means to be rooted in him. You see, so step by step. And, uh, and, and, and in that way, we grow, we mature, we become Christ-like. It's as we continue to walk in him, step by step. All that is simply to say, live a life that's surrendered to Christ. Because the only life you have to surrender to Christ, as we said last week, is the life that you live moment by moment. You can't surrender your life in an abstract way. It's like you can't take a walk in an abstract way. You can't take a walk without taking particular steps. A walk is nothing more than the steps that you take on that walk, right? So also, a life is nothing more than each moment that you live. So to surrender your life to Christ or to surrender your walk to Christ means you surrender this step, and then you surrender this step, and then you surrender this step. That's what it means to have a surrendered life to Christ. It's always now. It's always in the particular. And so the goal of our life has got to be, this is the, the, the most important goal we can have, is to every moment to cultivate an awareness where we are, that includes Christ. Remember that Christ exists. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, uh, however mundane the task, the most important fact of that moment is that you are in Christ and Christ is in you, the hope of glory, moving you step by step uh, to, to, to greater degrees of glory. We put on display the radiance of God's love and to remember that and to be surrendered to that. That's the most important thing, step by step. You can only do it one step at a time. Now, that is, I think, the most obvious thing in the world, if you think about it. Life is lived moment by moment. It's, it's obvious. To surrender your life to Christ is to surrender your life moment by moment. It's obvious. By definition, that's what it means. And it is the simplest thing in the world to understand. But it's also the hardest thing to do. Because we are so conditioned by our secular world to exclude God, to exclude Christ from our normal consciousness moment by moment. It's the simplest thing to understand. It's the hardest thing to do. But it's also the most important thing to do. Because it's what it means to surrender your life to Christ. Without that, we, we don't really mature. We don't really grow. So the question I want to ask then is this. Why, if this is so obvious and so simple to understand and yet so challenging and yet so important, why do we hardly ever hear about this? I, I, I'm thinking that if you, if you haven't been to Woodland Hills you know, for, if you just started attending in the last two years or so, you, you probably never heard this. This is not talked about much at all. And the question is why? When it's so foundational, so important, so obvious, so simple, and yet so hard, and yet everything hangs on it. Why is that? Part of the answer, I think the most fundamental answer, is that the way that we frame, the way that we think about Christianity in the West, not only doesn't include that, but in some ways works against that. We tend to think in contractual terms. We tend to think of things in terms of a contract. We think of salvation as sort of a contract. And our relationship with God is sort of a contract. Because all of our other relationships are, are contractual, so we apply that to God. And so we have a kind of a contract Christianity here in the West. Uh, people see salvation as something like this. Salvation is, is, is where you believe certain true things, like Jesus is Lord, the Bible's true, or whatever. You believe those things, and you pray a sinner's prayer, and boom, that gives you salvation. And for most people in the West, salvation is, is, it means you don't have to go to hell. It's, it's your insurance that protects you from going to hell, or it's your insurance that protects you from the wrath of God. You seal the deal with, when you believe the true things and you say the prayer. That seals the deal. It's a contract. Um, 
And, and, and then the goal of everything in this form of Christianity, the, the end game is not to be mature in Christ. That's not part of the contract. No, the end game is simply to get other people to sign the contract. You want to get more and more believers. That's why we're so interested in numbers. Evangelicals tend to really you know, get into like how many, how many souls were saved by raising their hand or how many prayers did you pray or whatever. And we're into the numbers thing because the important thing in this form of Christianity is to uh, get people to sign the contract, seal the deal, and then they got their insurance. Your post-mortem fire insurance, your protection. And so you buy salvation sort of in the same way that you buy a car. You just get it for free because all you have to do is to believe uh, certain true things and say a prayer. As prevalent as that kind of Christianity is, and I, and I think what I just said is probably familiar to almost everybody who's listening to this. That's, that's the kind of Christianity we're taught. Uh, well, that's so prevalent, I think it's fundamentally mistaken. It's the exact wrong way to frame the relationship with God, the wrong way to think about salvation, this contract Christianity. In the Bible, everything is framed in terms of a covenant, not a contract. And there is a world of difference. Here's what we have to understand. A world of difference between a covenant and a contract. In, in an outline way, here's sort of the difference. In, in, a, in a contract, it's like when you purchase something. Like you purchase car insurance or something. And there's an exchange of goods. You give money and you get the insurance. You give money, you get the car. You give money and you get the, you get the clothes or whatever you're buying. It's a legal deal. It's a legal deal. You sign the contract and that assures that, that they're going to get their money and you're going to get the goods. A covenant, however, is not a purchase of anything. It's more like a marriage. That marriage is the only covenant we have left in this culture. And you don't exchange goods in a covenant. You exchange lives. Uh, a, a, a contract in, it doesn't involve your, your inner being, but a covenant does. You're exchanging your very li lives. And whereas a contract is a legal deal, a, a covenant is a personal pledge. A, a, a contract is between parties. It's sort of what we have in common here, but it doesn't involve us. It's between us, whereas the covenant involves us. It involves our very life. When you get married, you are, your future is now wrapped up with this other person. A contract is, when you have a contractual arrangement, your trust is in the contract. You don't need to trust the other person because you're trusting the contract. In fact, if you think about it, the reason we have contracts is because we don't trust the other person. The contract is there to protect us, assuming the other person is not trustworthy, which is why contracts are always self-oriented. Whereas in covenants, your, your trust is in the other person. You're not trusting a piece of paper, you're trusting the other person. And so covenants are other-oriented. When you, when you marry, your, your, your focus is on the other. You're pledging your trust to, to, to this other person, and you're putting your trust in them. In the Bible, everything is framed in terms of covenant, not contracts. And so the Christianity of the New Testament is a covenantal Christianity, not a contract Christianity. That's why the New Testament's called the New Testament and not the new contract. Testament's just another word for covenant. It's the new covenant. That's what we're a part of. It's not a contract. And, and, and folks, see, salvation is not something that you, uh, you uh, a deal that you work out with uh, believing true things and, and saying a prayer. Salvation is, is, is a covenant that you enter into. That's why most today talk about salvation in the past tense. Where were you, were you saved? When were you saved? Did you pray the prayer? But in the Bible, it talks about it in the past tense, but also in the present tense, and even in the future tense, because it's a holistic thing you've entered into. You've entered into a marriage. To enter into salvation means that you pledge your life to Christ, and he pledges his life to you. That's what he did on Calvary. That's why we're called the bride of Christ, because we're married to him. 
We enter into salvation. We, we, all that is ours is now his, and all that is his is now ours. Praise God. Our lives become, as we've said here the last couple of weeks, intertwined with one another. Salvation is about participating in the life of God. Salvation is about being invited into the triune family. Praise God. And to be encompassed by the triune love of God. Salvation is about learning to grow in our love for him and growing in our knowledge of him and growing in our trustworthiness before him. Salvation is, is about living out that pledge, walk by, step by step, as we learn to walk in Christ just as we receive Christ. Salvation is about learning how to be a covenant partner with God to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. It's not a deal. God doesn't make deals. No, it's a covenant. It involves our very lives. This, this, this contract thinking has just screwed everything up royally. We don't even notice it because it's so prevalent, but it's the exact wrong way to frame things. When we think in terms of a contract, what happens is, is this. Um, I mean, there, there's, there's nothing that, there that motivates us to, to be living moment by moment in Christ. In fact, there's no behavioral implications at all as long as you've sealed the deal. In fact, if you're thinking with a, a, a contractual mindset, a contract mindset, then it's likely that you'll hear any sort of behavioral imperative, any sort of ought, anything that we're supposed to do, you'll hear that as legalism. Because if you're thinking in terms of a contract, what it sounds like is that you're if someone says you ought to live this way, well, that sounds like you're adding to the contract. That's right. See, and, and the deal that a lot of people thought they had is that if I just believe the true things and pray the prayer, then I got the protection from the wrath of God or from hell. And so when someone says, well, you ought to live a certain way, we need to be living in a certain way, some folks hear, hear legalism. Oh, you're adding to the contract. I almost, not always, but... Sometimes when I, when I talk about discipleship and uh, spiritual disciplines or like now the need to uh, stay aware of God's presence. Are you staying aware? Do you remember that Christ exists? Include him in your awareness. And, and when I talk about that, sometimes folks will come up afterwards, sincere folks, but they have a contract mindset. And I'll say, you know, I'm kind of worried that I thought this was a grace church. I, you know, I, 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 I'm worried that you're getting into legalism. Some folks, in fact, who are steeped in the contract mindset, uh, They'll, because their idea of the contract is that grace is for free. When they hear grace is for free and God's love is unconditional, when they hear that, if they're thinking like a contract, some folks will say, well, that doesn't matter how I live at all. And yippee! This is great! You know, there's a, there's a loophole here. I, I, as long as I, I believe the things and pray the prayer, well, then I got the protection. And so I can send my brains out. And, and, and you know, I, but I, I, I've sealed the deal. And so, and I've heard people say stuff like this where it's like, I got, you know, God looks at me and he doesn't see my sin. No, I got, I prayed the prayer when I was four and I got the Jesus protection. I got the insurance. God looks at me and, and doesn't see any of that. Praise God. Hallelujah. I saw the light. <laughs> I'm covered. Doesn't matter what I do. They hear, they hear freedom as a license to sin because they're thinking in terms of a contract. And if the clause, the contract clause doesn't include any behavioral implications, well, then, then it doesn't matter at all. I have known people at Woodland Hills, tenders here anyways, who uh, in the name of, of grace have uh, decided to dump their spouse and trade her in for a new one. And, and when, when folks have confronted that saying, wait a minute, you know, how can a follower of Jesus do this? The reply is, Wait, wait, I'm under grace. You can't judge me. I'm under grace. Folks who sleep around or do God knows what. And, and they, they'll say, oh, you, can't, you can't confront that because I'm under grace. It's not part of the contract. I sealed the deal when I prayed the prayer and, uh, and, and, and believed in, in, in the right things. See, it's crazy. It's, it's insidious. It's ridiculous. But it's, it's, it's prevalent all over the place. We would never, ever dream of thinking that way. 
if you were thinking in terms of a covenant. We'd never draw that conclusion. It's like, it's like I know that Shelly, my dear wife, loves me for free. She loves me for free. I, I, I'm married for free. I didn't, I didn't earn or purchase or merit her love. No, she just loves me. She just loves me. Uh, but I, I think most of you would agree that it'd be absurd for me to say, well, since, my, since she loves me for free, it doesn't matter what I do. I, I, you know, if she loves me for free, well, then, then I can be unfaithful and, and, and that's okay. If she loves me for free, well, then I can just treat her like, like, like a household pet. I can just do whatever I want. I can come home if I want to and don't have to come home if I want to because she loves me for free. You would agree that that's pretty stupid, wouldn't you? Guys, you better be going like this right now. Husbands. <laughs> terrible, terrible. Who would ever think that? See, it's a covenant. And, and, and if, I can say that Shelly loves me for free, uh, and yet you wouldn't think it's legalistic for me to say that though she loves me for free, I need... To treat her right, though she loves me for free, I need to be faithful. Though she loves me for free, I need to put her interests above my own. You wouldn't say that that's legalism. No, you see, because we're not talking about the freedom of a contract here. We're talking about the freedom of a covenant. And there's a, a, a world of difference between the two. You see, I, I, I don't merit or earn or, or, or achieve her, her love, but her love's for free. But see, the freedom is the freedom of a covenant. And, and a covenant of love carries with it its own ethical implications, its own behavioral imperatives, if you will. Uh, if I'm married to Shelley for free, then what that means is I'll be faithful to her. That's just what it is to be a husband. Uh, what it means is I will be uh, loving her back and I'll be treating her right and I'll be considerate and I'll be honoring to her and I'll put her interests before my own. Not to earn anything or achieve anything, not to be legalistic, but because that's just what it means. To be a husband in a covenantal relationship with another person. So also, so also, God loves us for free. Salvation is for free. It's all by grace. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You, you, you can't purchase it. It's, it. it's for free. Absolutely for free. Grace, grace, grace. 100%. But the freedom is not the freedom to sin. It's not the freedom of a contract. No, it's the freedom of a covenant. God loves us for free. But see... It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a love covenant, and, and a love covenant carries with it its own behavioral uh, expectations. And, and, and so loving God is just what it means to be in a saving relationship with him. Uh, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that I'm, I'm learning how to live like him. What it means to be married to Jesus is that I'm seeking to honor him step by step. What it means to, to be a follower of Jesus is that I'm learning to swim upstream in this culture. What it means to, to, to be married to Jesus is that we're, we're, we're learning to share our resources with others. We're learning to live with outrageous generosity. What it means to be, be married to Jesus is we're trying to cultivate a relationship with him. And we're invite, inviting others in on this relationship that's not achieving anything or earning anything or, or a legalistic rule. It's just what it means, what it means to be married to Jesus. This contract thinking has so screwed things up. It, just, it looks so much like a covenant that people can't tell the difference because we don't have many covenants in this culture. And yet there's a world of difference between a contract and a covenant. This is one of the reasons, I think the primary reason why uh, we don't talk about the step-by-step -step walk with God and how important that is and how foundational that is, even though it's obvious and even though it's simple to understand, even though it's so challenging to do, and yet everything hangs on this. We don't hear about it because our thinking tends to be contractual. See, the thing about a contract is that when you sign a contract, you don't have to think about it anymore. Your trust is in the legal force of the contract. So once the deal's done, the deal's done. 
I, I, I'm sure that, that, that we bought car insurance last year. Um, I, I think so anyways. Shelly takes care of that kind of stuff. I hope we bought car insurance, but, but I haven't thought about it. Uh, I couldn't even tell you where our insurance slip is. I'm sure it's somewhere. Um, I hope Shelly knows where it is. But, but I, I, you don't think about that. You seal it, you're done. That's, that's the beauty of a contract. You're legal, that's legally binding, so I don't have to trust anybody. I have to walk with anybody. I trust the contract, done. And so if salvation's like a contract, well, then we seal the deal, and we're done. Pray the prayer, done. Believe the things you're supposed to believe, done. And then we just go about our normal lives. Maybe trying to get other people to sign the contract. But see, folks, salvation is not a contract. It's a covenant. And, uh, and, and what it is to be in a saving relationship with God, it's not something that's ever done. No, it's always now. It's always present. What it is to be saved is to you move into a new reality, right? You, 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 you live in this new, new reality, this new story. It's a story that every moment you're surrounded by the love of God, and your main job that moment is to surrender to Him. Uh, what it is is to to enter into a this relationship where you're inviting, you're breaking down the wall between the secular and and the, the sacred, as we said last week. Uh, it, it, what it is to be in a saving relation with God is that you're you're making everything sacred, every moment sacred by inviting God into that moment. That's what it is to bring the kingdom into everything we're doing, driving the car, mowing the lawn, whatever. You, you, you live in a way where you're inviting the kingdom in all the time by yielding to the king, making that moment a dome over which he reigns. It's not a contract. It's, it's a covenant. And so to surrender our life to Christ means we surrender moment by moment because the only life we have to surrender is the one that we live moment by moment. So it's about adjusting our mindset, adjusting the way we do ordinary consciousness. Okay, let me... Uh, um, uh, then end by going over, uh, I, I, last week I shared four strategies for staying awake, uh, and I'm going to uh, add to those two more. One more thing before we get into that. Here's what you find, is that our motivation, our motivation for staying awake, for staying present, for including God, for strenuously contending for this, to be very intentional about being aware of God's presence and yielded to God's presence, God's presence moment by moment, our motivation is not to fulfill a duty or to... to, to Sign a contract. It's not some external rule, uh, you know, to, to, to our life. It's not any kind of legalism. Uh, and we're not doing it to get anything out of it. We, we do it because it's true. God is there, and we want to just be living in congruity with God, right? We want our life and our mind to line up with truth. So we don't do it for what we can get out of it. But we will find, and many of us have found, that as you do this, uh, see, this is the way that you detox, as we said last week. We have all this pollution, all the lies that we've brought in. And to live, to live free from the clouds is to live free moment by moment. As we, as we remember that God is here and, and we are in him and he is in us. Uh, we are learning to live in, in the warmth and the brightness of the sun. Praise God. Uh, the more that we surrender to Christ, the more our life becomes depolluted. The more we surrender to Christ, the more the things that are true begin to feel true to us. The more we surrender to Christ, the more congruity there is between our heart and minds and, and, and reality, because the reality is that Christ is there moment by moment. We're just getting our, our, our thinking to be accurate. The most important fact of any moment is that Christ is there. So remember that, and, 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 and now you're looking at the world and living in the world more accurately than you were before when you excluded Christ from your awareness. We do this, as we do this, we find that it is the key to our getting our life and our identity and worth from Christ moment by moment. We can't do it in the abstract, surrender our life to Christ in the abstract. No, life is always concrete, it's always now. And so, right now, we're to be getting our worth and our value and our significance from Christ, rooted in Christ 
with every step that we take, drinking the nourishment. And that's how we grow towards to become fully mature in him. Okay, so six uh, quick little tips here, and then we'll take some questions. Number one, I talked about rising early. Uh, I called it early rising rooting, because you're getting rooted in Christ. It's all about how to stay rooted in Christ. And uh, uh, what I said last week was that uh, you find throughout the Bible and throughout the church tradition, folks have found that the early, it's so important to first waking moments of the day to, to consecrate them to God. And so I encourage folks, even before you got out of bed, if that's possible, some folks need their cup of coffee first. I got that. But, but as soon as the neurons start popping in the head, uh, to turn your awareness to God's presence and, and just breathe in for five minutes or 30 minutes, however long God leads you to, to do this, and, 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 and just be aware that you are right now uh, in the presence of God. And, and you'll find that by consecrating that first, those first moments to him, it, it, it tends to, there's no magic formula here, but it tends to reorientate your day. Yeah. And, and, and you're more effective at staying awake throughout the day when you consecrate the first part of the day to him. So I encourage you to do that. Secondly, we talked about rooting moments. And, and by this, I just mean develop the habit of taking breaks throughout the day. Whenever you're transitioning from one thing to another, stop and let that be a reminder to just stay awake. Uh, when you, you finish your job, just stop and, and, and for 30 seconds to a minute, uh, just remind yourself that you're in the heart of the triune God right now. You're loved with a love that could not possibly be improved upon. It, it makes the day a lot a better day. Uh, but you don't do it for what you can get out of it. You do it because it's true. So just remind yourself what is true. And, and as you sprinkle in those, those impromptu moments throughout the day, you'll find it becomes more and more a habit. It's just what you do as you transition from one thing to the other. When I'm writing, I'll, at the end of a paragraph or something, I'll just stop, read the paragraph, and then I'll just remember. Oh, yeah, that's right. Christ exists. <laughs> and, and I'm writing about him. You know, you think I remember that. But it's hard to stay away. Uh, and, uh, and, and so you just get your heart and mind to line up with what is true. So there's rooting moments. Then I talk about rooting reminders. And that is simply to put in the course of your day, in the path that you travel. You tend to travel each day. Put reminders, post-it notes that will help you stay away. Wherever you're going to see them, uh, reminders that will, will just remind you that Christ is there and, and he's in you, the hope of glory, and you're in him. And, and uh, we need this all over the place because we're in such a secular world that squishes God out. That's how our mind's conditioned, so we need to be squishing him back in with these reminders. And then I encourage folks to have rooting friends. Everything in the kingdom operates better in community. It was never meant to be an individual thing. So find one or two or five people who also want to stay awake. And you just say, listen, let's remind each other. Uh, you know, give a phone call, uh, text message or, or whatever uh, to stay awake. Are you staying present? Don't forget. Don't forget that Christ exists. And you just find ways of, of, of reminding each other. It was interesting this last week, and following up the message from last week, uh, there was all over Twitterville, uh, folks were reminding each other to stay awake. I love seeing it. Um, and uh, yeah, you just tweet on it. And I, I tweet on that once in a while. Everyone who's following me on Twitter, I just go, hey, you know, stay awake. This is a sacred moment, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it, we, reminders. You need rooting friends. Find ways of, of inviting each other into in each other's lives. Then, here's a new thing we didn't get to last week. I call it regimented rooting, and simply this. Whereas in the moments, we, we, those sort of impromptu uh, things to remind yourself, some folks find that it helps to have scheduled breaks where you, you set the alarm uh, or have some other way of of notifying you that at noon you're going to stop and take a 15-minute prayer break, or at 3 o'clock, or, or whatever. Uh, you, 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 it's, it's rather regimented. Uh, but here's the thing. That's, that, that, that'd be a, a legalistic thing if, if it was imposed on you and you didn't want to do it oh, this is a, to fulfill a contract. But if you're doing it as an expression of love, there's, 
It's the most holistic, wonderful thing in the world. It's no different than, you know, I'm not being legalistic when I write down on the calendar, our anniversary's coming up. You know, I, 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 you know I, and I don't do that just so Shelly won't get mad at me if I forget. I do it because I love my wife. And I want to remember that. So also, this is just a way of imposing a discipline in our life to help us love God more effectively, more thoroughly. I was at the airport several months ago, and as I'm waiting to get on the plane, there's this guy who, uh, I'm sure a lot of you have seen this, where just before we board the plane, he gets out his prayer mat, faces east, gets down, and does his, his bowing. And this is a Muslim man who is facing Mecca, and an Orthodox Muslim will pray five times a day, every three hours they pray. And they're supposed to get on the ground and face east, and they, they do this kind of a prayer thing. Now, I'm not re- recommending that we do that. But I am recommending that, that you have regimented times, that you disciplined times where you stop. And you just remind yourself of what is true, that you're in the presence of God, and you breathe that in. And then finally, finally I, I, there are what I call uh, rooting exercises. Um, and, and that's simply where, like in rooting moments, you're sort of impromptu, where you just sort of, as you're transitioning from one thing to the other, you remind yourself of, of uh, Christ's existence. This is a, a more of an exercise where you take out a block of time. Uh, I, I find it helpful to, to start uh, with activities that are rather mundane that you don't need to use your brain very much on, like mowing the lawn or doing the dishes, you know, where you're just maybe daydreaming anyways, and turn it into a sort of a contest, a challenge, to see how much you can keep Christ on your mind during that, that time. I do this when I'm jogging sometimes. Uh, where I, 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 it's like, now this should be the goal of our whole entire day, but we've got to start, you've got to take baby steps before you can run a marathon. So, so you, you take a block of time and, and just turn that into a challenge. How thoroughly can I saturate this time while I'm doing dishes or mowing the lawn or going for a jog or whatever? How much can I saturate this time uh, with, with uh, Christ? It's an exercise to stay present. Brother Lawrence, this is in the church tradition, this is called practicing the presence of God. And Brother Lawrence was one of the main advocates, and he washed dishes in this monastery. And, and he would, all the time he's doing dishes, turn into a sacrament uh, to stay awake, to stay present to God. Uh, and he said that that becomes, uh, when, you, when you do that, that now doing dishes, which otherwise would be a mundane, boring thing, becomes a sacred moment. It's still pretty boring, but at least it's a sacred, boring moment. So praise God for that. Okay, are there any questions that we can address here? Other questions that, that you might have about this or anything tangentially related? Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. The question is, do you think the Old Testament has contractual things with God? There are things, good question, there are things that look contractual to us. But actually, in the ancient world, um, uh, all their thinking was much more covenantal than contractual. You only get contract thinking when you get something in place where uh, you have a law enforcement that's independent of the people doing the bar- bargaining, as it were, and uh, they can enforce things. So that's when you get this kind of neutral contract idea. But in, in the ancient world in general, certainly in the Old Testament, there, almost all deals were made as pledges. You're, that's why the, in the Old Testament, your word is everything. And, and um, they would, in the Old Testament, make a covenant. In fact, the, the term for making a covenant is called cutting a covenant. And what they would frequently do, and you find this in a number of places in the Old Testament, is that when they would enter into a covenant, they would take an animal and sacrifice it. I'm so glad I didn't live back then because I couldn't kill an animal if I had to. But they would kill the animal, and it was a way of saying, this is how serious they took this stuff, if, if either of us breaks covenant, let, us, let it be unto us as it is to this animal. Uh, in other words, to, to, to violate your word is death. Now, it looks like a contract to us because we, we see everything through a grid of contract, but really it's all done out of a covenantal thing where your trust is in the other person. And it's, so God, in the old, throughout the Bible, enters into covenants. 
Uh, but they're not at all contracts. There's no deals. Got time for one more? If anyone has, yes. Yeah, good question. So, yeah, so the, 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 the man's asking, um, do I see Philippians 2.13 where Paul says, so then work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you both to will and do his good pleasure. I, I think it's perfect. I, I, I think it very much is. Now, I, I, in fact, I, I spoke on that verse a couple weeks ago uh, as I was fleshing out some of what Paul's getting at here. It's important to note that he's, he doesn't say work at your salvation uh, as though it was something that you know, is not yet there. He says work it out. So the idea that is that this salvation is already here. He's certainly saying it in, in, in a traditional first century Jewish language. He's, say, he's saying this is a serious and awesome thing, okay, fear and trembling, to work it out. Um, but it's not something that you work at to merit or achieve, but it's rather, I think he's saying the same thing he's saying here. You walk it out. You, you make sure that here you have the salvation. It's yours. And remember, salvation is not this going to escape hell when I die sort of a thing. Salvation is the here and now. It is the marriage relationship we have with Christ. And now we're to be walking in a way where we manifest it. We walk it out. And uh, God's in us. That's Christ in us, the hope of glory. He's always moving us in this direction. For it's God who's in you, both the will and to do his good pleasure. And, and yet we're, we're, we're to be the ones in every now. It's a present active imperative. Working it out um, and, and manifesting it. I wonder if the working out in that passage is also in the present active imperative. Now, if it's not, it doesn't mean that it's not a present active thing, because there's other ways of saying it in Greek, but it'd be interesting if it, in fact, is in the present active imperative. But at this point, I'm losing you, getting all caught up into my, all my, my geeky Greek stuff. All right, very good question. I appreciate that. All right, you guys, the, the point of this, whatever it takes, uh, let's be a people who uh, strive, and it takes intentionality, such intentionality. Easiest thing in the world to do, uh, to understand, hardest thing in the world to do. Uh, but let's be a people who, who commit as part of our covenant with God, uh, to fundamentally changing the way that we do ordinary life. It just doesn't, if we keep taking trips and visiting the spiritual realm as though it was the exception to the rule, we're, we're, we're never going to seriously change. Uh, this is, I think, one of the reasons why the American church tends to be a very immature church. Because we keep on visiting the realm of the spiritual, but we live 99% of our life in this, in this zone where he's not at all in our mind, at all. And, and that has got to change. So let's commit. And we'll end by praying and asking the Holy Spirit to help us to remember, to remember that Christ exists, that he's always here. He's always in you. You're always in him. You're dancing in the heart of the triune God moment by moment. You're saved. Salvation is yours. But our job then is to, in this moment and now in this one, to work it out, to walk it out, to manifest that lordship with every step that we take. Mm. And then we start to live free from the clouds and to detox uh, in a contract, it is easier to understand what I get from God. Is it okay to expect things from God in a covenant? And what should I expect from him? Brilliant question. Brilliant question. This is so... Here's why this is brilliant. It's because uh, a lot of folks... A lot of folks... Um, I'll say this. There is nothing wrong with expecting uh, God to honor whatever the terms of the covenant are. So there's nothing inherently wrong about that. All covenants have expectations. That's... I mentioned that with my own marriage. There is an expectation that I'm going to treat my wife in a considerate way um, and not be seeing how much I can get away with. Um, there the, are the behavioral expectations that go with that covenant. And so we can expect God to honor the covenant. Now, where a lot of people get, go off is that some of what they think is promised to them isn't promised to them. And, and so you get God, people who get angry because they're not wealthy or they get angry because 
they you know, came down with cancer and they're blaming God for that. Or they, a lot of people f- expect that, uh, and it's not usually their fault, they're taught this. But I think the teaching is just misbased. Where God's supposed to come through and, and, and bless us with all the trinkets and toys and health and wealth and whatever. What you can expect from God and what you, get, you can always get is that, that, that he, he uh, is his character. He, and, and he revealed what that character is on Calvary. You can know, always know, that God is for you, not against you. You can always know that he has a profound love for you. You can always know he's working to bring good out of evil. Praise God. Whatever you go through, you can know that he's suffering with you and he's redeeming that moment. Uh, so you can count on the promises of God. You just got to make sure that the promises you're trusting on are the ones he really has given you in the new covenant. In the old covenant, they had some different arrangements. In the new covenant, what he gives us is his character and he's with us. Uh, and, uh, but a lot of bad stuff can still happen. So don't get mad at God when that, when that occurs. Uh, another question. If covenant requires trust in the other party, how do we keep God's trust? I don't feel like I'm very trustworthy over a long period of time. Well, that's very honest. I appreciate that. Um, well, this is, this is, this is what the, the, the whole growth thing is about, uh, is to become trustworthy. We, it, it, we, st- we have to start by acknowledging, to whatever degree it's true, that we have not been trustworthy. Uh, all growth is premised on repentance. Um, and... and, and uh, We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in fact, every sin is really equivalent to spiritual adultery. It's cheating on Christ. And and so we confess that we've been spiritual adulterers. That's the starting point. Uh, And so we turn. Now, that's conviction that causes us to turn and and to say, I'm going to move in that direction, a different direction here. That's different than condemnation. Condemnation is of the devil. That's where you don't just say, what I've been doing is wrong, I want to turn. But here's where it becomes a personal thing. It's about a you thing, and you are a loser. You are no good. You can't be loved and whatever. That's not of God. That doesn't bring about turning. That brings about self-loathing. And anything, self-loathing drives you deeper into sin. It doesn't free you from it. Conviction is where we turn, and we see a different way of living. And then we call on God to help us. And we surrender to his presence. Christ is in us, the hope of glory, right? We, this isn't a self-effort thing. No, no we, ask, we ask God who is abiding in us to now move us in a new direction. And, uh, and it's learning how to live a life that is, in fact, trustworthy. That reflects his values, not American values. That reflects his priorities, not the priorities that we've been handed in culture. That reflect our identity in Christ, not the identity that you got from, from your upbringing or from the advertisements that you've been wa- watching. It's all about learning how to be a trustworthy bride. The bride is making herself ready. Amen. Very good. I tell you for one more. When people view their salvation as contract and continue treating it as such, does God still acknowledge that salvation? Very good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, here, here's what I, I I love this question. I, I suspect. And I don't know. Uh, you know who who wrote this, of course, but. Um, it seems to me that the question is posed in a contract framework. Does God still acknowledge that salvation? Uh, I, I, I don't know for sure, but, but it, almost sounds, it's, it's, it almost sounds like a contract. Like, like uh, if you misunderstand the contract, is, is this contract still in force? The, the important question here, it's not, it's not like God has an itemized list. Like, I'm not going to honor that salvation, but I will honor this one. And, you know, or or you, you answered enough correct questions, therefore I'll pat, you pass the test, you know, or something like that. It's rather about the relationship. 
Does God acknowledge that salvation? It almost sounds like the salvation is something other than, than, than God. Um, no, salvation is participating in the life of God. Salvation is marriage to Jesus Christ. Salvation is being transformed from the inside out, uh, from Christ in us, the, the hope of glory. So God, it's not about God acknowledging salvation. It's just a matter of saying, what is real? The question is, is, has a, a, a legal uh, feel to it because it's, it, it's almost like, like uh, you acknowledging or not acknowledging is, is, confers a reality on the contract. But in fact, if you understand that salvation simply is the relationship with God that's transforming, that is all by grace, if you understand that, then there's nothing, it's not a matter of whether God's going to acknowledge it or not, like a, a deal. Rather, the question is, is, is this person... Does this person have a married relationship with Christ? And that's about the orientation of your heart. You can, you can be, I'm sure we're all in various ways to various degrees, me less than most people for sure, but we're screwed up. We got screwed up heads. I, I'm sure, you know, our theology is funky, but God's not up there with a, with a, you know, he's not making a deal. Like you have to get 44% of your theology right and then I'll, then I'll, then I'll give you this other thing called salvation. No, it's a, it's, the question is, is, is our heart orientated really towards God? Yeah, we got, we're screwed up all over the place for sure. But, but is our heart orientated there? And, and then there's nothing left for God to acknowledge other than is, is this real or not? You can have a person who's got 100% true theology but they're not participating in salvation because their heart is not towards God. And you can get a person who's got a completely, completely screwed up theology, but, but they can have a, a, a more vibrant relationship with God than the person who's got it all right, if that's where their heart is. So don't, don't think in terms of contract, what God's got to acknowledge or not, what, what, what ends the deal or makes the deal or anything of the sort. The only relevant question is what is real? What is real? And that, to ask that question is not to ask the question about what you did in the past, nor is it to ask the question about what you're going to do in the future. It's about asking the question, what are you doing right now? What are you doing right now? Are you aware that God exists? Are you aware right now that you're in God and God is in you? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Stay awake and then yield, just yield. And for some folks here that are listening through podcasts, this may be the first time you've ever done this. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ right now. And now do it again. <laughs> we make such a big deal out of it. Evangelicals tend to make such a big deal out of that first time. Were you saved back in 1974? Yeah, that's great. That was when I first found Christ. But that's irrelevant. Am I finding him now? That's the important question. Am I rooted now? Am I awake now? Am I surrendered now? Praise God. How do tithes and the teachings of the Old Testament, which seem very contractual, fit into this covenant stuff? Excellent question. Excellent question. See, because we have a contract mindset, we tend to... We instinctively read covenants as contracts. When in fact, in the ancient world, there, was, there were some contracts, things that could be considered contracts, like purchasing stuff. But, but on the whole, things were done in a covenantal way, where, where you pledged your very life in the process of, of, of these, these, uh, uh, making these covenants. In fact, when you would make a covenant, uh, the, the Hebrew term for making a covenant is, is to cut a covenant. And it was called to cut a covenant because what you would do is they would uh, take an animal and, and split it in two. You see this in like Genesis 17 when God makes his covenant with, with Abraham. You split the animal in two. I'm so glad that I wasn't in the Old Testament because I couldn't do that. It's like I would never be making covenants. You can't. That's mean to animals. But we're talking Old Testament. What are you going to do? So they would, they would cut an animal in two and then they put it on both sides and they'd walk between it. Pretty gross. Uh, but that, that what they're saying is, if we, if we break the terms of this covenant, then let it be to us, 
uh, as it is with this animal. In other words, it's death. Our, our word, our pledge is all important. And, and that's why you have such an emphasis uh, throughout the Bible on, on being trustworthy. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And just be a trustworthy person. They didn't lean on contracts the way we do. They trusted one another. We don't trust anybody. That's why lawyers have job security in our culture. Uh, it's all contractual and, and everyone's out to sue everybody. All that is to say this, that the tithe was, was, was part of their covenant. That was part of the terms of their covenant. Uh, in fact, that was part of their taxation. Um, they, they weren't purchasing anything with that or anything. It was just uh, one of the institutional ways that they had of walking. That's what it meant to walk faithfully with God uh, in the Old Testament. But it wasn't a contract. It was, it was part of their covenant. Okay, uh, any other questions? Is so, if salvation is a lifelong process, can we lose our salvation if we mess up? Excellent. See, here is where it makes such a difference on whether you're thinking contract or covenant. A lot of the questions, I'd even say the majority of the questions that Western Christians worry about, and this is one of them, uh, are, 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 they presuppose a contractual framework rather than a covenantal framework. If you're thinking in terms of a contract, then the question is this. Okay, I, I, I prayed the prayer and I made the pledge and, and, and I sealed the deal. And if you're thinking in terms of a contract, then what you're hearing me say is, no, you didn't seal the deal. The deal's not sealed yet. Because now there's other parts of the contract you've got to walk out. Okay? And, and, and staying present is one of them. Uh, and so now the question is, is well, then if I, if I haven't sealed the deal, well, then is there, can I lose it if I don't, if I don't fulfill the contract? But see, if you're thinking in terms of a covenant, that's not the question you'd ask. Um, it'd, be, it'd be like saying, can I, you know, can I divorce my wife? Uh, yeah, I, I could. And she could divorce me. Um, but I'm not going to live in this mindset of like, how, what might I do that would cause her to divorce me? How much can I get away with without her divorcing me? You know, honey, uh, you know, if I stay out, uh, you know, uh, if, I, if I don't come home one night a week, are you going to divorce me? Uh, how, how about two nights a week? If I, if I cheat on you once, are you going to divorce me? How about ten times? How much can I cheat on you and still, you know, keep this marriage here? Because I want to keep the marriage, but I just want to get away with it as much as possible. Nah! That's, see, that, that's the wrong... That, no! That's, that's a prescription for a sucky, sucky marriage. In marriage, what it means is that, that, that you're, you're, you're looking at how do we make it deeper? How do we, how do we you know, go deeper with this? And, and, and you're, you're moving in an opposite direction. Le legalities are always about how close to the edge can I get before I, I cross over? Like, oh, oh, did I break the law there? You know, is it going to, do I lose my salvation if I do this? What about this? What about this? It's like folks just say, well, you know, what, what exactly technically is, 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 is having sex? First base, second base. You know, it's like, okay, what is the line here? We want to get as close to it as possible. Uh, you know, it's like, eh, how about this? And, and it's amazing that, you know, once you start thinking like that, you go into that lawyer kind of mindset, you find loopholes and ways of redefining stuff. We get very clever. Our inner lawyer comes out and we're, and God bless lawyers, by the way. I'm not slamming you. I'm just, you know. <laughs> lawyers can be godly. I imagine. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. No, but see, it, it, Paul says, flee from immorality. In other words, go the other direction. Don't, don't, don't be seeing how close to the edge you can get. Um, and so it, it, it's not a matter of, of if you mess up. Uh, it's, it's like, I know that I'm not the perfect husband. I'm pretty close, but I'm not quite there yet. So, so society's not going to divorce me because I was inconsiderate one day or I was grouchy or I was... It's not a matter of me messing up. 
It's about the relationship. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. And I could kill the relationship. But it wouldn't be by doing one thing wrong or five things wrong. It'd be about having my heart moving in a different direction. And so, yeah, you know, I, I think our hearts can move in a direction where we're no longer in a relationship with him. Um, that, that can happen. Uh, but it's not a matter of, of, of defining the particular behaviors that would ruin it. It's a matter of your heart orientation. Keep your heart open that direction. And yeah, you, you might screw up some. Uh, but the, this isn't a contract. So that, those aren't the issues. It's about the direction you're heading. How, how's your heart oriented? Move in that direction. Okay, got time for one more maybe. I love these questions. How do you make this attractive to others and yourself when a contract is so easy and comfortable and the covenant is so hard and constantly changing, challenging? Ah, see, that is very good. I love this. This is good. Well, it's, it's, here, here's the thing. This, here, this is a challenge. because A contract is. This is why it's so, it sells so well in this culture. Uh, you know, we, we do everything with contracts, and they're easy, and they're simple, and you can forget about them, and they don't require... As long as you sealed the deal, then you walk with the insurance, and, and, and that's... To, a, to the carnal self, that is very appealing. That's why it sells so well. On the other hand, it's so cheap, and there's nothing fulfilling about that. When we turn our relation with God into this contract, this deal, it's, it's, it, 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 it feeds one part of us this... this, this you know, kind of shallow part of us, but it's so unfulfilling. Um, it's, it's the difference between being married and going to a prostitute, if I can get that crass. You know, are you going to do it out of a deal, or, or are you going to have this fulfilling relationship? A, a covenant, the only, way to, the only way to have your life transformed, and here's what's attractive about it, is, is that if you want, if you hunger and thirst for his righteousness, and you really want to have a fulfilling relationship with him, if you want to have your, a new identity, a new life, a new self uh, that is free, truly free, like we sang about earlier, then a covenant's the only way to do it. And it's challenging, moment by moment challenging. Are you awake to God's presence right now? It's, it's super challenging. But anyone who's done this will tell you it's more than worth it. No, it, it's, we don't do it to, uh, for what we can get out of it, but man, do we get a lot out of it. Uh, just like, I, I don't, I'm not married for what I can get out of it, but man, I get a lot out of it. I, 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 you know, if you stay married to somebody for 30 years and, and work through the issues, it grows deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's so rewarding. There's, there's a depth of love you can only get to through a lot of hard work. And you don't earn it. That's not legalism. You're not achieving anything. It's just what it means to be growing in love is hard work and, 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 and striving moment by moment. So, yeah, to the carnal self, this isn't attractive. But, but we're not here to placate the carnal self. We're, we're here to, to grow and to become mature in Christ. And that requires step by step by step, being mindful and surrendered, mindful and surrendered. So I encourage you to take those exercises and to integrate them into your life and, and, uh, and, and, and begin the practice of turning your car ride into a sacred car ride and the mowing of the lawn, uh, a sacred mowing of the lawn and doing the dishes, sacred dishes and going out for a jog to make it a sacred jogging and whatever we do, whoever we talk to, whatever we're about, make it a kingdom moment by surrendering to him. Amen? Amen. Amen. I want to invite the uh, prayer teams to come forward. And uh, if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever, uh, I, I really encourage us to take advantage of the, the prayer ministry here, folks. Uh, you should never have to leave here with the burden that you came here with. Uh, share it with them and, and pray for, 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 for uh, enter into prayer with them about whatever it is that's on your heart, whatever it may be. So, Abba, Father, as we leave here, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be reminding us that you'd be the ultimate post-it note. 
reminding us to stay awake, to stay present, to stay surrendered and yielded. Moment by moment, Lord, as we seek to be a people who walk in a covenantal relationship with you, surrender to you in every moment of our life. Thank you, God, for being a God who invades our life. Moment by moment, incorporating us into your triune being. Help us to stay awake to that beautiful, beautiful, transforming reality. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.